The Journal presents the Good Information Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Good Information Podcast, a series where the Journal gets to grips with 15 major topics that our audience has told us are impacting their daily lives and focusing their minds on the future. I'm Susan Daly, Managing Editor of The Journal, where the Good Information Project has been giving readers the opportunity to engage directly with editors and journalists on these issues. With you, we've looked at their impact on Ireland and on our place in the wider EU. In this episode, we're asking, in the case of United Ireland, how would a shared island work? How much would it cost? Will we see it in our lifetime? We'll answer these questions and more, but here was our audience's take on the issue. If we are truly to unite, it's got to be an inclusive amalgamation where the unionists in the north have their identity respected and acknowledged. It's the antithesis of this way that caused so many problems before, where nationalists face discrimination and oppression by unionists. We must not do that to them, or we're back to square one. An all-inclusive Ireland will be united. Any other version won't. New name for the country, new flag, new anthem. Move the Parliament to Belfast and rotate with Dublin. A new constitution. But keep proportional representation, that's a red line. A shared Ireland is promoting a shared response to the same difficulties which are present both north and south. I don't believe approaching the subject as it's being approached at present is the right way forward. The first step should be in realignment or alignment on shared issues. For example, tackling the housing crises in both jurisdictions with the same plan, receiving the same outcome, a better housing policy. This would, of course, mean a shared pocket for the Irish government. A shared island won't happen overnight. It needs to be a stepped process. And maybe we need to park the idea completely and instead suggest we work together as two jurisdictions to solve our shared issues instead. Creating an organic pathway as opposed to a rigid end goal. So what are the facts of the matter? Good Information Project producer Carl Kinsella guides us through the current legal pathway towards a united Ireland and how such an outcome could be triggered as well as the views of the wider public on support for a united Ireland. While a shared island remains firmly in the realm of ideas at this moment in time, the Good Information Project sought to establish the facts that underpin all of the potential obstacles and opportunities pertaining to a united Ireland. In accepting the Good Friday Agreement, both the British and Irish governments were required to accept the current constitutional situation of Northern Ireland. The agreement states that the present wish of the people of Northern Ireland is to maintain the union and that the current situation relies upon that wish. It also clearly acknowledges that the constitutional status of the region is a decision for the people of Northern Ireland. The agreement also states that if such a decision is taken in referendums on both sides of the border, governments have an obligation to introduce legislation to give effect to that change. In the case of the UK, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland would be responsible for bringing such legislation before the UK Parliament. The Northern Ireland Secretary, however, arguably has a much more significant role in determining when such a referendum would actually happen. That position has been held by Brandon Lewis since February 2020, and in 2021, Lewis's Northern Ireland office declined to detail the criteria that would lead the office to calling for a referendum on the matter. 
Contained within the Good Friday Agreement is the presumption that a majority of people in the Republic of Ireland is supportive of the idea of unification. This guiding principle has been borne out in many polls conducted over the years. But amongst the public, it appears that support for unification is conditional. A poll conducted by the Good Information Project in conjunction with independent polling company Ireland Thinks in March 2021 found that only 36% still support a united Ireland if it requires changing the flag. The same group of 1,026 respondents were also less likely to support a shared island if it came at the price of the current national anthem, Aaron Naveen. Only 41% support unification under those conditions. The question of a shared island is therefore one that hinges on many moving parts, many of which do not seem to have fallen into place just yet. Thanks, Carl. Now let's get to the practicalities involved in creating a shared island. I'm joined by CJ McKinney, legal affairs journalist, to discuss the key questions around such a process and some of the potential solutions. Welcome, CJ. Now tell me this, what is the shared island unit up to? The idea of the shared island is basically how in Ireland and Northern Ireland work together. So it's not about how you create a united Ireland. It's about, you know, we have the Good Friday Agreement that encourages cooperation. Let's do some cooperation. So the shared island unit is this small group of civil servants um, charged with taking that forward. And, and what does that mean in practice? What they're doing, I would say there's three main things. So first of all, you've got a pot of money for cross-border transport spending. So there's 1 billion euro from the Irish government up to 2030, and they've done stuff like uh, spruce up the Ulster Canal that kind of wanders up around the border, Monaghan and Armagh. Uh, so it's tangible um, output there. Secondly, they're funding research into the all-island economy, healthcare, environment, stuff that wouldn't necessarily be looked at in detail otherwise. And then thirdly, and this is where it gets a bit fuzzier in terms of what you get out of the, the units, uh, they're what they call shared island dialogues. So these are conferences where people get together and they talk about cross-border tourism, sport, uh, a minister gives the opening address. Um, so it's literally bringing people together, uh, which is nice. So overall, you've got a kind of an all-Ireland flavor to this activity. It's stuff that might be useful if you had a unification referendum tomorrow, um, but without being uh, overtly uh, Brits out about the whole thing. Right. So we do have a lot of dialogue happening. We have a lot of groundwork being prepared, perhaps, for the idea of one island, one nation sort of a job. Um, but I guess what it seems to be missing from that is there's lovely projects, a bit of nibbling around the edges. But the idea of uni uni uniting all the systems, all the processes, all the economic, healthcare, everything, it's not a simple thing. And a simple question but perhaps not a simple answer, I would say, CJ, from you, is what would a shared island like that cost us? Yeah, I mean, if you were talking about a full-on united Ireland, uh, you know, the Northern Ireland becomes part of the Republic or you have a new state that incorporates the two entities, you know, we know from polling that uh, voters in the Republic are... Uh, well, they say at least that they wouldn't vote in favor of that if taxes went up. Whether people would act on that in, in the reality is, is a different thing, but that's what people say. And so that, that cost question uh, is important. And it is, I think, legitimate because we know in part from some of this research that the Shared Island Unit has sponsored, uh, that the Northern Irish economy is weaker, there's relatively high public spending, um, and people worry that it would be a, a bit of an albatross around their necks, frankly. Um, and the British state uh, effectively subsidizes Northern Ireland to the tune of about 10 billion pounds a year. 
uh, higher in euro, and that's government spending on Northern Ireland above what people and businesses there pay in taxes. So it is complicated. You can argue that figure down a bit when you get into the breakdown of how it's calculated. And it's definitely not as simple as saying, well, if Northern Ireland became part of the Republic tomorrow, there'd be a 10 billion pounds, 12 billion euro hole in the budget. Uh, it's certainly not that simple. Um, there's even been a paper published recently that argues um, that actually the whole thing is totally irrelevant. It's a distraction and that there, there is no subsidy um, in part because the British state would keep paying for a lot of stuff after reunification, which I think may be an optimistic assumption. Would that be things, CJ, like, say, pensions and so on that, that people in Northern Ireland have been paying into? Exactly. Pensions is a big part of it. And, uh, you know, the argument is people who have been paying in to the British system over the years, they're entitled to their pension from the British state, you know, in future, even if they become citizens of the Republic. Um, Maybe. Uh, I mean, legally speaking, pensions don't work like that. Um, you, you know, people think of themselves as paying in and having an entitlement to get the money back out in future. Um, but that's not actually how it works. You, your, your pensions uh, are paid from uh, current taxation. Um, so there, there, there is no entitlement. So if, if uh, Northern Ireland became part of the Republic tomorrow and, and nothing else happened, uh, there would be no legal entitlement that people in Northern Ireland would have to, to get their pensions from the British states. They couldn't, couldn't sue uh, to get their money. So that would all be a matter for negotiations, essentially. If, if uh, you were having uh, preparations for a referendum or preparations for unification, We'd have to go to the British government and say, hey, do you fancy paying all these pensions on into the future? Um, and they might say no, and you might trade it off against other things. So I, I definitely think it's an issue that needs to be thought about. And obviously, ideally, you want to have these discussions before having a referendum, right? Because uh, you get an idea of where negotiations land on pensions, uh, divvying up of UK national debt. And so then you have an idea before the vote of is there going to be a significant fis fiscal liability for the Irish government? How big is it? Is it big enough that actually taxes might have to go up or borrowing have to go up and then you're in a better place to have an informed uh, vote? If that was the case, and we did get as far as that kind of conversation and a referendum, I mean, that really is far down the road and overlooking maybe some assumptions that, that we're making about, you know, what happens if, you know, we're all in the euro and, and so on. And what support then could we look at from the EU? Have we been down this road before? Have they a case study of this where they've gone, well, well this is how we worked it out? I mean, we think about Germany, I think we think of reunifications. Um, is there anything like that that we can look to? Not as far as I'm aware. Uh, you know, when Germany reunified, West Germany was on the hook for that. And, and it, was, it was a huge fiscal drain. Obviously, it's a different situation because East Germany was a uh, had diverged economically uh, far more so. So I don't think there is a direct precedent and I don't think there's a guarantee that the EU would ride in with a big pot of money uh, in this unification scenario. EU funding for Northern Ireland in the past has largely been from two sources. There's been peace process type money and there's been what they call stru structural funds, uh, which is kind of economic investment that you get as part of EU membership. And the UK government has kind of stepped in to take over those two sources of funding since Brexit. So uh, there is still peace process money, but actually the British government 
pays the majority of that, even though it's badged as an EU thing, the EU contributes some as well. And there's now a UK replacement for the structural funds. So there hasn't been a massive kind of financial loss to Northern Ireland from Brexit, um, at least in terms of these sort of subsidies. So if Northern Ireland were to rejoin the EU by becoming part of the Republic of Ireland, um, I don't think there's going to be mechanically any extra money just by virtue of that. You know, you'd have access to structural funds again, but that's already been covered by by the UK government. Now you could you can always ask. If you don't ask, you don't get. You could make a pitch for some kind of extra spending to smooth the path of of unification. But there's no commitments certainly at the moment at EU level to say, uh, oh, congratulations on the whole United Ireland thing. Uh, here's a big sack of money to get you going. And we have talked a lot about the shared island here um, in this topic, and that's the way we approached it. But of course, on the side part of it is thinking about if if that doesn't happen. And we had Barry Andrews, MEP, write a piece for us around what the conversation in, his Brus- in Brussels is about this. And he was talking about a fellow MEP who had made an interesting remark saying, having read more about the protocol, I thought it had the potential to solidify support for the current constitutional settlement in Northern Ireland. Having a foot in both camps has the potential to bring prosperity to Northern Ireland for the first time. So, CJ, I mean, I may be putting you on the spot with this, but is there a possibility that we could go forward and in our lifetime, Northern Ireland will just develop into a different state, a more independent state and, and find some new lease of life? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how the protocol works out because you know, the more economically successful Northern Ireland is, uh, arguably the less demand there's going to be for uh, major upheaval uh, that um, unification would be for, for better or for worse. It's would be a major change and people are, are risk averse, right? The uh, polling, I think fairly consistently in Northern Ireland over the past uh, number of years has showed uh, support for staying in the United Kingdom. That's even though the demographics of, um, you know, Catholics, traditional nationalists have, have shifted um, in, in favor of what you would assume would be uh, nationalism. So, you know, and so there's a sizable constituency there that just thinks, you know, things are fine. Uh, let's not rock the boat too much. Obviously, if the protocol does have this effect, and we don't know yet how it's going to land, but if if this foot in both camps uh, economic powerhouse idea um, does come to fruition, then absolutely you would be very surprised in those circumstances to see uh, support for United Ireland then take off. As with this island, we will wait and see. Thanks so much for coming in, CJ. We'll give the last word to Dermot Hamill, one of the excellent young Northern Irish people who took part in our Open Newsroom event, hosted by the journal's Brexit reporter, Gronny Nier, on what future he and his peers would like to see. The education system needs a lot of reform. It needs a lot of restructuring. We need greater focus on integration, I think the whole kind of segregating of Catholics and Protestant students, you know, even a lot of us who don't believe in it, we've been segregated, we've been ripped apart, we're being kept apart until really we go to uni or if we get involved outside of school. And I think specifically at religious education, I think we also have to look at how it's taught and what is taught. Like, I know people who have said they've had their rights debated in a classroom, and I just don't think that's acceptable. That is, that's, that's mental. And it's, it's absolutely not acceptable that things like that have to be dealt with where 
we look at things more analytically rather than we, we don't debate people's rights, especially not in a GCSE class. Like, there are so many issues in education that need dealt with. And we need to start getting people talking. We need to get people together rather than keeping us segregated as young people and giving young people a voice. I think one other issue that I'll very quickly say is votes at 16 is a big thing that I've been a pusher for because it's great young people having a voice. It's great young people talking and raising our issues. But we're not listened to if we don't have a stake. If we don't have a vote, we will be, oh, yeah, we're listening. Promise we're definitely listening to you. But if there's unless there's an election coming, we aren't we aren't listened to at all. We're told we're being listened to, but our concerns aren't being actually properly raised. So if if we young people have a vote, we have teeth, and that means that we can actually make sure our issues are raised, and we can decide who it is that's raising them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Information Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Adrian Carty, with research by Carl Kinsler and additional journalism from the Good Information Project team. Go to thejournal.ie to find out more about the entire Good Information Project and email us at goodinformation@thejournal.ie with your feedback and questions. If you want to hear more episodes in this series, find us at the Good Information Podcast on the Journal app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. Parliament.